0: KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.
1: The costumes, the stars, the madness of Comic-Con returns to San Diego.
2: I'm just getting goosebumps even thinking about how amazing this place is.
1: I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with M.G. Perez. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The January 6th hearings explore the results of extremism.
3: For a long time, you had the sort of extreme right in this country kind of licking its wounds and it sort of retreated away a little bit. But it never, you know, never went anywhere. I mean, these ideas are still out there.
1: The brief Hilton Bayfront hotel strike underscores tough economic realities for San Diego workers. And heat waves are sparking a second look at the power of shade. That's ahead on Midday Edition.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.
1: San Diego Comic-Con is back. More than 130,000 people are expected to attend the four-day pop culture party, which begins today. It's the first full-scale in-person Comic-Con since 2019. Old fans, new fans, movie, streaming, and TV stars, and of course, the bedrock of the con, comic book creators, artists, and writers will all be on hand for the reemergence of San Diego's largest annual convention. KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado spoke to Comic Con attendee Christian Ramos from Texas, who summed up the atmosphere pretty well.
2: It's like I'm just getting goosebumps even thinking about how amazing this place is and how special this little, you know, section of San Diego is to all of us.
1: Yesterday, a strike at the Hilton San Diego Bayfront Hotel threatened to put a hitch in the Comic-Con reopening. But last night, the union reached a tentative agreement with management. We'll have more on that outcome later in the show. And of course, the pandemic will not be entirely forgotten. The crowded main floor of the convention center will be a bit less crowded with vendors this year. People must show proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test to get into the halls. And even the masked crusaders attending will have to wear masks over their faces. And speaking of the costumes, some of the Comic-Con cosplayers you'll see downtown are hardcore. The 501st Legion is a worldwide costuming or cosplay organization run by fans dedicated to creating screen-accurate bad guy costumes from the Star Wars universe. The volunteer group is not affiliated with Lucasfilm, but its members have appeared as extras in the recent Obi-Wan Kenobi show and do appear at events, especially charity ones for Lucasfilm. When KPBS arts reporter Beth Akamando got her own stormtrooper costume, she decided to attend an armor party and check in with Lindsay Seapock of the local Imperial Sands Garrison to find out about joining the Legion.
2: First of all, explain who you are and what your role is with the 501st.
4: So I'm the Legion executive officer for the 501st Legion. So it basically means I'm the second in command for the global organization
2: explain what's going on right now behind you
4: so this is what we call an armor party it is what we do at the local level to get members together but it's not only for members it's also for potential members who are looking to join the 501st or any of the other um, associated clubs which would be like the rebel legion or the mandalorian mercs so if you're looking to build a costume, you're not quite sure how to build it, or you're working on something and you don't know how to do this, but you know somebody else will know how to do it, you come here and everybody gets together and works on the costume together. And it's basically just a big community event that we have every couple of months, maybe once a month, every couple of months, depending, and get together and just have a really good time working on costumes.
2: So to the outside world, the 501st may be a little intimidating. First of all, you're all stormtroopers wearing masks so we can't see your faces. But what would you recommend to somebody who like wants to get into this and maybe doesn't want to be in the 501st but does want to like start getting into Star Wars cosplay?
4: So one of the things that I always try to encourage people to think about is that we're not only just the plastic spacemen. we're not only stormtroopers. If there is a character who's a bad guy in Star Wars, there's probably someone for you in the 501st. It could be a Mandalorian. We have the Mandalorian, Boba Fett, a lot of the bounty hunters, they're part of us. If you want to be a Jawa, a Tusken Raider, There are lots of just jumpsuit type characters that are also really easy, you don't have to wear a helmet and you can join us. You can actually like buy kits that can help you get into the Legion. Obviously, you can't just buy it and immediately get in, but you can buy it and then we can work and help you get in. If you just want to cosplay and you don't want to be part of the 501st, that's completely fine. Like, Go out, find a costume you like, just get with your other costumers at conventions. Just dress up in your favorite costume, it doesn't have to be accurate, it doesn't have to be perfect, it's whatever you want to do for Star Wars and whatever makes you feel good representing a character that you love.
2: Now with the 501st, talk about how you guys really want to do screen accurate and what goes into creating the costumes that are approved for 501st.
4: So when we mean screen accurate, we are trying to get something as close to what you actually see on screen as possible. Now that could be an actual movie or television, it's a live action, that could be a comic book, that could be cartoons, that could be video games. So what happens is we try to get angles from all the sides Sometimes we even have to use action figures if we don't have all of the, the sides that we need, though we try to l- rely on action figures a little bit less. But we'll take that and then people will get together on the what we call a detachment forum, which is basically people who are dedicated to just that type of costume. So for example, if you're looking into Boba Fett, you're gonna go to the Bounty Hunters Guild. And so you go to the Bounty Hunters Guild and there are gonna be people who are devoted to just helping figure out well, what does Boba Fett wear? What type of material is it? How exactly does his you know so- shoulder pauldron sit? Basically what our guidelines are called the Costume Reference Library. And so the 501st has a Costume Reference Library and also the Rebel Legion, which are the good guys. So if you're looking to do a good guy costume, you're gonna to go to the Rebel Legion and they also have a Costume Reference Library. And that's gonna tell you what you need, what type of materials. If it's a Boba Fett, what your helmet's supposed to look like, what the paint colors, you know, supposed to be in the range of, and things like that. And they're basically a guideline, but also again, the detachment forums is where you can go and go, hey, I'm working on this, I've painted this helmet, I'm not quite sure, does this look okay? Or you can come to an armor party like this and bring your helmet and go, does this look okay? I need help, and we'll help you get it up to snuff. But again if you're not you're not looking to get it up to like 501 standards that's completely okay sometimes the difference between getting in and getting out is a stitch in the right place and you know what if your stitch isn't in the right place it doesn't make your costume any better or any worse than anybody else's it's all about what you're feeling comfortable with and what you want to do with your costume.
2: And if you do get approved by First, what does that organization do and get to do in costume?
4: One of the best things about our organization and why I really encourage people if they're interested to really work to try to get in is that we do a lot of charity work. And so we do charity work with hospitals where we do, you know, hospital visits. We do events with Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. We do military, you know, celebration events. Basically, we do a lot of charity. We help raise money for different groups. And we also, you know, we'll troop at San Diego Comic-Con. We'll do stuff like that. And also occasionally, if you're really lucky, occasionally we will be asked by certain organizations to do, uh, sometimes Lucasfilm will ask us to do certain things with them. That is. A, that is pretty rare. We are more lucky here in Southern California that we get to do that kind of stuff because we have a good relationship with Lucasfilm, but we are not affiliated with them directly. That is one thing that I think people always get a little bit confused on. We are, we are not directly associated with them. We do not work for Lucasfilm, but because we have a good relationship with them, they will ask us to do stuff like that. Also, I forgot to mention it. We will We get to do soccer games we get to do the hockey games we get to go to the goals we also get to go to the padres so if you see us the padres that's us so we could do fun stuff like that but my favorite thing is just the charity work we get to work with a lot of kids we do my favorite are always the libraries we get to go to the libraries read books to the kids it's great
2: and personally what do you cosplay as
4: so i do general hawks from the new star wars movies who is a very, very <laughs> bad person, but I have a lot of fun being really, really bad.
2: And how did you get involved in this in the first place?
4: So I've always really, really loved Star Wars. And I've always really been into costuming. and I've been doing costuming for about, uh, probably 11, 12 years now, but I had never really thought about joining the 501st until The Force Awakens came out and I f- fell in love with Hux for better or worse. And I really wanted to get into the 501st with Hux. And also, I had just recently moved to San Diego, and I'd heard really great things about our garrison here, which is called Imperial Sands Garrison. And so I really worked to get approved and my hucks, and I never looked back.
2: And is there anything else you want to tell us about the organization?
4: I I will say we are 14,000 strong in 60 different countries. No matter where you live, there will be a 501st around somewhere for you to join. So if you are unsure, there is information on the 501st website that you can find out about. Also, we have a ton of military members. If you're in the military and you join the 501st, you will automatically have a 501st group wherever you go at your your new place. And I think that that's always great because we have a lot of military members who will transfer and they'll immediately have a base that'll take them up when they transfer to their new base. No matter where you go, if you're in the 501st, you're always going to have a ready group of friends, a ready group of people that like the same things as you, and you can immediately hit the ground running and have like, you know, community events. You can do the armor parties, you can do troop, what we call troops, which is our charity events. And so no matter where you go, you're gonna find friends. So that's the best part about it is, I can go anywhere in the world and I'm gonna have friends now.
1: That was Beth Acomando speaking with Lindsay C. Park. The 501st will have a panel tomorrow at Comic-Con on villainous costuming. And they have a fan table at the convention for anyone who wants to get more information about the organization.
5: Last month, the Department of Homeland Security issued a terrorism advisory warning that in the coming months they expect the threat for extremist violence to rise due to high-profile events that could be exploited to justify acts of violence against a range of possible targets. The targets include public gatherings, faith-based institutions, schools, racial minorities, and religious minorities. Will Carlos, who covers extremism and emerging issues nationwide for USA Today, spoke with Midday Edition's Jade Heinemann about the ideologies driving extremism and how some of those ideologies are homegrown here in San Diego. Here's that interview. Will, glad to have you with us.
3: Always a pleasure. Thank you.
5: So the Department of
6: Homeland Security says they expect the threat for extremist violence to heighten over the next six months. From what you've been reporting on, what do you see driving this heightened risk for domestic terrorism?
3: Well, it's it's definitely a combination of things. I mean, firstly, you have the far right in this country coming out of a period in which they've really sort of been uh, cowed. I think it's fair to say by the January sixth insurrection and the and the preceding uh, hundreds of indictments and arrests that came out of that. Um, You saw a massive sort of cleaning up of social media accounts a lot of these movements were kicked off of social media accounts and so you you for a long time you had the sort of extreme right in this country kind of licking its wounds and it sort of retreated away a little bit, but it never, you know, never went anywhere. I mean, these ideas are still out there and this group has sort of been waiting for the opportunity to reemerge. And I think we've started to see more and more examples of that reemergence in the last few months. And I think we're going to see more uh, in the coming months and years.
6: And there is yet another hearing uh, before us on the January 6th insurrection, which was driven by extremism, as you've touched on. Can you talk about how these people were emboldened?
3: Certainly. I mean, in in the weeks leading up to January 6th, uh, extremism researchers and journalists like myself were watching as these groups really were grouping together and and discussing their plans for January 6th and what they were going to do. And it was clear that they were being, they very much felt like they were being invited to the nation's capital by the president and being asked to do whatever needed to be done to ensure that uh, Donald Trump remained president. I mean, I think that, that that was clear to a lot of people in the run up to January 6th, and I think it's uh, been made clear to uh, most members of the American public at this point through the commission hearings and the subsequent uh, um, legal action that's been brought against the protesters. So, I mean, they were they were emboldened by the entire um, Republican uh, you know, Party to some extent, but but certainly by the president himself.
6: And, you know, many who stormed the Capitol subscribe to this Great Replacement conspiracy theory, which is the same thing that motivated the terrorist attack in Buffalo, New York.
3: How pervasive is this idea? The Great Replacement theory, really, if you'd asked people about it sort of five or 10 years ago, they would have said it was a very much a neo-Nazi, fully extremist right wing uh, viewpoint and theory that was Essentially, at its core, extremely anti Semitic. What it has kind of developed into these days is, is there's a more mainstream version of it that is pushed by people like Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram, who that essentially leaves out the anti Semitic side of things, but it's still essentially the same. Idea: the idea that immigrants of color are being brought into this country by an organized kind of cabal of of leftists, and that they're being brought in because they're more likely to vote Democrat and kick the you know Republicans out of um, out of power forever.
6: You know, this theory has really been mainstreamed by people like Tucker Carlson, as you touched on, uh, Peter Navarro, and One American News, all of which have ties to San Diego. What is it about San Diego that seems
3: to breed a culture of extremism? So I remember 20 years ago reporting on The Minutemen who came to the border in San Diego to kind of defend the borders against the invaders. And I think that San Diego, obviously it's geographically a very interesting, very fascinating place. It's right here on the border. And I think a lot of Americans look to San Diego as sort of one of these watershed places where the changes that they're not okay with in this country are happening just by mere virtue of the fact that we have a border here. I mean, for what it's worth, I've lived lived—I've lived for a long time in San Diego and always found it to be a, a very sort of politically neutral place itself. But I think it's more just kind of seen as a beacon of uh, change um, that, that people aren't too happy about around the rest of the country.
6: You know, as the January 6th hearings come to an end, as we head into the midterm elections, uh, how much does our current political climate play into this elevated risk for extremist violence?
3: Oh, I, I mean, it's it's just an absolute boiling point right now. I mean, it was in in 2016 but i think even more so now look if president trump announces that he's going to run in 2024 then you're going to see just an absolute ramping up of rhetoric, ramping up of hate, ramping up of, you know, of, of political ideologies from, from both ends of the spectrum. And I think it's, I'm sorry to say, I think it's gonna be a really rough couple of years. I think we're gonna see a lot of, uh, you know, an uptick in hate crime. I think we're gonna see an uptick in political violence, in civil disobedience. I mean, it's it's gonna be rough, guys. I mean, I would, I would strap in.
6: I've been speaking with Will Carlos, reporter for USA Today, who covers extremism and emerging issues nationwide. Will, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Jade.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.
1: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez. Jade Heinemann is away today. It's been two months since Will Rodriguez Kennedy, chairman of the San Diego County Democratic Party, took a leave of absence following allegations of sexual assault. He denies the allegations, but said he would step down while the party's ethics committee investigates him. Now, court and police records obtained by KPBS show Rodriguez Kennedy was in a relationship 10 years ago that included mutual accusations of abuse. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen uncovered this story, and he joins me now. And Andrew, welcome.
7: Hi, Maureen. Thank you.
1: Let's start with who made these accusations against Rodriguez Kennedy 10 years ago and what they entail.
7: The accusations were made by an ex-boyfriend in a sworn statement that accompanied a request for a restraining order. Uh, And they surround an altercation that happened, he says, in August of 2012. Uh, The ex says that Rodriguez Kennedy came home uh, that night drunk. Uh, They lived together at the time. And uh, that he accused him of cheating, which the boyfriend denied. Uh, He then says that Rodriguez Kennedy cornered him in the bathroom, kneeled on his neck, pulled his hair, poked his eye, and briefly strangled him with his forearm. Um, The accuser says he then managed to escape and jump off the second floor balcony, which he said caused an ankle injury. And he says he slept at a bus stop that night and chose not to call the police at the time because he was afraid if Rodriguez Kennedy was arrested that he wouldn't have a place to live. Um, the accuser also said that this was part of a pattern of abuse and that the, the relationship was over at that point, um, but he still feared for his own safety. So what happened with the restraining order that the ex-boyfriend sought? A judge granted a temporary restraining order against Rodriguez-Kennedy in October of 2012, and it was just two days after the accuser signed this sworn statement. Uh, And temporary restraining orders, it's it's important to note, do have a lower burden of proof than regular restraining orders. So this one was granted solely based on the ex-boyfriend's testimony. Uh, And there were uh, there was a photo of his face that apparently showed some signs of abuse and a screenshot of some text messages. But neither of those things you can actually make out in the court records because they were photocopied and they're just uh, too dark to actually see um, anything Uh, there. So after this temporary restraining order was granted, a judge set a hearing a few weeks later. But sheriff's deputies were actually unable to locate Rodriguez Kennedy and serve him with court summons. At one point, they say in their records that a roommate of Rodriguez Kennedy's said that he was out of town, which appears to be true based on our efforts to corroborate that. Uh, so it's very possible that Rodriguez Kennedy just never heard about this. Um, the ex-boyfriend showed up at that first hearing on the whether to make the restraining order permanent, but Rodriguez Kennedy was absent uh, because he hadn't been summoned. So uh, the hearing had to be rescheduled, and then at that rescheduled hearing, neither party showed up, neither the accuser nor Rodriguez Kennedy. And after that point, the judge dissolved the temporary restraining order, and the case was effectively over.
1: Now, Rodriguez Kennedy denies these allegations. What did he tell you?
7: Well, not only does he deny the allegations in that sworn statement, he says he wasn't even aware that the temporary restraining order existed or was ever taken out against him until more recently. Uh, He also says that he was a victim of domestic violence in this relationship and that the temporary restraining order was his ex-boyfriend's attempt to use the court system to further abuse him. Uh, He did provide us with a police report, which we verified with the the police department is authentic. Um, And so Rodriguez Kennedy filed this police report three weeks prior to that incident with his ex-boyfriend. And in that earlier incident, Rodriguez Kennedy said he went to speak with his then boyfriend at the time, who was at a friend's apartment. But he said the boyfriend was ignoring him, so he grabbed his arm to get his attention. And that grabbing caused the boyfriend to lose his balance and fall to the ground, at which point he said, you pushed me. So Rodriguez-Kennedy says his boyfriend at the time then charged at him and punched him in the face. Rodriguez-Kennedy says he pushed him back again, and the boyfriend came back at him with punches a second time. And uh, the police officer who wrote this report said Rodriguez-Kennedy didn't have any visible injuries and that he refused medical treatment. And remind us what Rodriguez Kennedy is accused of doing more recently. There's a lot less that we know about those accusations, which surfaced earlier uh, this year in May in a Facebook post from an activist uh, named Tasha Williamson. The accuser himself in that incident hasn't come forward publicly, although I have spoken with his attorney. Uh, He's another ex-boyfriend, and he says that Rodriguez Kennedy had sex with him while he was intoxicated to the point of being unable to give consent. Uh, And that's about all we can report around those allegations at this time. Uh, It's important to note Rodriguez-Kennedy denies those allegations as well. He says they're totally out of character for him, and he says he has evidence to corroborate his version of the events, although we haven't seen that yet. He also says the uncovering of the older accusations against him from 2012 are a smear campaign and that he doesn't feel like they are newsworthy
1: well that that's my question. Rodriguez Kennedy is not an elected official, so why are these alleged details of his personal life of public importance?
7: He is not an elected official, but he is a public figure with influence over local politics and probably the big the the clearest example is with the county Democratic Party's endorsements. They endorse mayors, uh, city council members, uh, candidates for elected office of all kinds. And while endorsements aren't made by the chair alone, the party chairs in the past and currently can and do steer the party in one direction or in favor of one candidate or another. They also have some degree of control and influence over how the party spends money. And it's not exactly a secret that Rodriguez-Kennedy wants to run for office someday in the future. These allegations are 10 years old, they are complicated, but we feel that given the recent accusations, they are at the very least worth reporting on in all of their complexity.
1: So what happens next?
7: Well, there was a police report filed with the San Diego Police Department this year about the more recent accusations. That case now appears to be in the hand of the district attorney's office, which has to decide if there's enough evidence to actually prosecute. And the County Democratic Party, uh, meanwhile, says it can't conclude its investigation into these accusations until law enforcement has included their investigation. So they're waiting on that. And in the meantime, uh, Will Rodriguez-Kennedy is still on leave from his position with the party, and the party itself is still declining to comment.
1: I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. And Andrew, thank you.
7: Thank you, Maureen.
5: Striking Hilton Bayfront workers reached a tentative agreement with management last night, just before Comic-Con started up. The hotel employs some 600 unionized workers who have gone without a contract since November. The details of the new agreement will not be made public until the deal is ratified by union members. That strike underscores the harsh economic realities that workers face here in San Diego and across the county. Joining us now with more is Alor Calderon. Director of the Employee Rights Center. Alor, welcome to the program.
8: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for this very important topic.
5: So you are Director of the Employee Rights Center. Who is it that you help and how do you help them?
8: Exactly these workers that you were talking that were on their strike. So the Employee Rights Center started in 1999, supported by local uh, unions, local uh, foundations and actual statewide foundations to be the place where both union and non-union workers can confront or help uh, deal with their issues at work.
5: So this strike really highlights what a lot of workers are facing right now. Their jobs simply aren't paying enough to keep up with the high cost of living and inflation. Why do wages continue to fall so short?
8: Not only is wages, although growing, because uh, as compared to other states, somebody say, well, you know, it's a little higher than other states. The fact of the matter is that the economic issues are local and not national. That is The cost of living in San San Diego, especially one of the most expensive counties in the country, is higher than most other places and even higher than other places in the state. That means that even when you say, oh, well, $15 an hour, it's a a larger amount that you would have expected even five years ago. The truth is that that is not nearly enough to allow for a family of four for a full time person to cover maybe just rent.
5: You are very much an advocate for employees. When we talk about economic recovery from the pandemic, how do you advocate for a livable wage and who do you have to motivate and convince in order for that to happen?
8: We believe that there should be a living wage, not just a minimum wage. And we very much appreciate the state of California, you know, the past governor, the current governor, the, you know, the legislator that they have moved in that direction. But it's not the only places where we can go there. And both the county of San Diego and the city of San Diego, to mention two of the of the largest players in this field, have the ability to raise the wage uh, through particular uh, law changes in their county or in the in the city to bring the minimum wage to a living wage. So, give you a, uh, let me give you a quick example. If you work for a contract for the city of San Diego. Uh, something that most people haven't heard and is part of this issue is because this is not spoken enough, you will get a living wage, not a minimum wage. That is jobs that are directly contracted out out of the city of San Diego. And so they get not only a higher uh, paid at the minimum wage, but they also get an extra amount of money for health coverage or other expenses, and so this is definitely the two places that we would advocate. In fact, we will be advocating in the in the future that it's not enough to have a minimum wage. You should have. We should have a living wage in this county and in all the cities in San Diego.
5: We have seen union workers wearing T-shirts and hats with the slogan "One job should be enough." Is that a reality for most San Diegans?
8: It's not. It's not. And I mean, it, again, there's so many measurements that you can go at it. But uh, we just talked about the whole point of a living wage and a great partner of us. The Center on Policy Initiatives, does a you know yearly by yearly report. And that's a, a local calculation of how much for a living wage would be as opposed to a minimum wage. And it's many, many, many dollars above 15. So I would say probably... A couple of years ago it was 21 22 an hour we're probably now in the range given especially the high inflation that we are under now uh given the the situation internationally we probably are talking more in the range of the 23 to 25 and and that is just calculating basic expenses so a living wage is not I'm well up a living wage doesn't mean that I can save you know a lot of money a living wage means at the end of the month I am not in debt. So
5: we know the situation is dire. I know that you talk to a lot of workers uh, in your job. How are they coping? How are they surviving?
8: Well, I would say barely surviving. And so what when, one of the many hidden secrets in, the, in this county, in the city, is that people have to live in very um, you know difficult conditions, squalor conditions in order to survive. So what does that mean? We don't want to face it, but there's too many people living in their cars way too many people. And we don't, we don't track this because the political will has not been there to really, you know, not, not prosecute them. Because if you're living in your car, the police will say, you know, either leave or I'm going to, I'm going to give you a ticket. Too many people, I I mean, it obviously clearly is a homelessness, but I think that that's sort of a, a, uh, an obvious to somebody who can't even afford to have any kind of roof over their head, but there's too many people living in cars. There's too many people living in garages that are not supposed to be uh, rooms. There's way too many people more. And in this, I would say families, I would say there's whole regions of, of the county, um, I would say Southeastern San Diego, where single family homes have host two or three families. And so uh, this, this uh, you know, places are, uh, you know, uh, low rent, but also high density. And so for instance, Employee Red right Center is in city heights. City Heights has a lot of this. And so how do they survive? Multiple jobs for family. Uh, children are not really dedicated as much as they should to school. And everybody's working just to keep up with expenses.
5: We are moving through the pandemic. COVID has affected so many people's ability to work and earn. What kind of worker relief program exists uh, in your through your organization?
8: So uh, uh, a little bit about the Employer Rights Center. We are a resource and a hub for you know, several things. We help you with issues at work. We connect you with other institutions, including with uh, training, working, or finding job kind of institutions. So we ourselves, we do not provide job-related services. However, we do something that is uh, very much related to that, which is, um, if you're um, new to the country, if you are not aware of these institutions, if you need to know exactly how to interrelate, we do do the case management that leads you to that. But I would say the the large institutions that deal with that, the probably the biggest and the most important is the uh, continuing ed, continuing education uh, from the community college district. That is by far the the largest and free um, training. Um, You know, or sort of training facility capacity that we have in common.
5: I've been speaking with Alor Calderon, director of the Employee Rights Center. Alor, thank you for joining us.
8: Thank you.
1: How far should society go in trying to help the most severely mentally ill? There's a bill making its way through the state legislature that aims to create a new kind of court system in California, one with the authority to compel some people to receive mental health treatment, even if they don't want it. The proposal has sparked intense debate about personal freedom and how best to protect people from the toll of mental illness. From Los Angeles, KPCC's Robert Garova reports.
9: The plan, first introduced by Governor Gavin Newsom in spring, is called the Community Assistance Recovery and Empowerment Act, or CARE Court for short, and the basics as currently written are this. People living with a serious, untreated mental illness could be referred for a court-ordered CARE plan. The court intervention could be initiated by a family member, county behavioral health workers, or even first responders. If the CARE plan fails, the person could be hospitalized or referred to a conservatorship. That might mean forced treatment, stripping some of the patient's individual rights. The secretary of the California Health and Human Services Agency, Mark Galley, says part of the goal is to make sure people living with a serious mental illness don't have to get to that most drastic step.
5: One of the key tenets of CareCourt is to prevent, avoid
9: conservatorship. Galley says there's broad agreement that something needs to change. He says CareCourt could help between seven and 12,000 Californians, but not everyone agrees.
7: Fun care, care, not
9: cages. Protesters in front of the L.A. County Board of Supervisors called for the county to bring thousands of mental health treatment beds online. They say that would divert some of the people in L.A. County jails living with a serious mental illness. Some 40 groups, including Disability Rights California and ACLU California Action, signed a letter opposing CARE Court. California Senator Tom Umberg, co-author of the CARE Court bill, says he's fully aware of those concerns and those particularly family members who have tried everything and now are tearing their hair out because they don't know where to go and they don't know what to do new york university sociology professor alex barnard is currently researching involuntary treatment in california he says it can be difficult to untangle where family struggles are tied to their family members not realizing they need help and refusing treatment
0: And the fact that the system is just incredibly complicated for families to navigate and often isn't providing what they think they need and what their family members might actually accept if it was given to them.
9: Experts estimate California should have at least 50 psychiatric inpatient beds for every 100,000 people. According to data from 2016, it had less than half of that. Barnard says in places like France, which has a public mental health care system, they don't need judges ordering people around because treatment is guaranteed. I think in the U.S., we believe we can innovate our way out of crises. You know, at some point,
0: there's a question of just what is the basic infrastructure here? Like, where are the clinics? Where are the housing units? Who are the professionals?
9: Barnard also questions whether CARE Court could put further strain on public guardians offices throughout the state. Scarlett Hughes is executive director of the California Association of Public Guardians. She believes CARE Court would open the door for more conservatorships in the state without any long-term funding for a system that's already struggling. Every single county is having enormous problems finding appropriate placements for their clients at all levels of care. Mental health advocate and writer Victoria Marie Alonzo grew up in Downey and now lives on the Central Coast. She's also a new grandma.
2: My family is my most important thing.
9: Alonzo says she suffered through hallucinations and thought she was receiving messages from God two decades ago. In 2008, a team of doctors eventually diagnosed her with schizoaffective disorder, which she says is now in remission. About 10 years ago, she was part of a mental health crisis team, which went out on calls in Santa Barbara County.
2: You know, I had to go like two, three hours away to find them a bed and they were suicidal and they needed help right away. And so like crisis teams, I mean, their hands are tied when there's no bed.
9: ALONZO LIKES THE IDEA THAT Carecord WOULD ALLOW FAMILY MEMBERS TO BRING UP CONCERNS ABOUT THEIR LOVED ONE'S MENTAL HEALTH.
2: BECAUSE SO OFTEN PEOPLE WHO SUFFER FROM A SERIOUS MENTAL DISORDER THAT'S UNTREATED HAVE NO WAY TO ADVOCATE FOR THEMSELVES.
9: BUT ALONZO WORRIES THAT PEOPLE COULD HAVE UNFAIR RESTRICTIONS PUT ON THEM IF FAMILY MEMBERS OR OTHER CARE court PETITIONERS DON'T HAVE THEIR BEST INTEREST AT HEART. SHE SAYS SHE'D LIKE TO SEE MORE INVESTMENT IN preventative CARE AND EDUCATION so that maybe a court never has to enter the picture.
1: That was KPCC's Robert Garova reporting.
0: KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at CandlewoodArtsFestival.org.
1: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.J. Perez. Jade Heineman is away. With a heat wave scorching the West, environmentalists are looking for ways to cool things down. One way for urban areas to beat the heat is to consider the power of shade. Under the unsheltered sun, people can feel as much as 20 degrees warmer than in a shady area. The obvious way to provide this free and natural cooling is to line a neighborhood with trees except Quite often, that's not what's happened. Last year, I spoke with climate journalist, Alejandra Barunda, about the role of trees to keep neighborhoods cool as the climate warms. Here's that interview. Let's talk for a minute about the power of shade. What can a shady environment help prevent when it comes to heat-related illness?
10: shade is just such a wonderful thing. It's one of the easiest ways we have to keep our bodies cool during a hot event. I mean, you probably have this experience, right? You can know exactly what it feels like to go stand under a tree and cool down and then you go back out into the direct sun and, and it gets a lot harder to temperature regulate, to, to keep your body at a comfortable temperature. And this is true for, for bodies and this is true for cities as well. The more shade they're is in an area, the less heat, the concrete, the asphalt, all of these different parts of the city end up absorbing, which means that they can stay cooler.
1: And when you are do not have that shade cover, you have an increased likelihood of having some sort of illness because of heat if it gets too hot for too long. Isn't that right?
10: Yeah, exactly. Heat is actually the most deadly natural disaster kind of natural disaster we face every year in the U.S., it has huge public health impacts and can be incredibly devastating to people who are living in too much heat. And the disparity is really unequal. People of color are much more likely to suffer from all kinds of heat-related illnesses and problems than wealthier people, often who are white.
1: Right. Now, in this article, in examining the benefits of trees and shade in cities, you do find a distinct divide between rich and poor across America, so that the amount of shade can almost be seen as an index of inequality. Tell us about that.
10: Yeah, so there's been some really, really fascinating research that's been happening for a long time, but but has kind of accelerated in the last few years, looking at the distribution of trees across different cities all throughout the U.S., and there's this really clear pattern that emerges in areas that were formerly redlined or kind of denied investment from the federal government over many decades in the past in a way that has continuing impacts today. There are a lot less trees and in neighborhoods that were not redlined, there are many more, sometimes up to you know around 40% tree cover. So if you imagine the sky above you covered with with leaves and trees, that's a lot. That's a totally different experience. And that has a really clear impact on temperatures. The differences between these formerly redlined areas and, and not redlined areas can be over 10 degrees Fahrenheit.
1: A lot of your article focuses on the city of Los Angeles. and What kind of statistics do we find when it comes to the shady divide throughout Los Angeles?
10: For this story, we spent uh, quite a bit of time in different parts of South Los Angeles and other parts of the city as well. And in particular, we drove along Vermont Avenue, which cuts South to North through the city. And in some of the neighborhoods that we started in, in South and South Central LA, the tree cover was about 3%, always kind of in the single digits. So that means there's basically nothing between you and, and the sunshine when you're standing on the street there. And that was mostly in neighborhoods that were formerly redlined and denied investment for many, many years and decades. And as you drove north toward Griffith Park, you started to encounter more and more trees, both on the sides of the street and in people's homes and backyards. And by the time you get up essentially to the park, there are these big, beautiful Big trees that are were planted in the early 1900s and have canopies that cover 80 feet at this point. So these big, giant, beautiful trees that create this incredibly comfortable shady environment beneath them.
1: Now, according to a study by the group American Forests, here in San Diego, we are among the 20 cities in the nation that need to plant more trees to achieve, quote, tree equity. And that group says we need to add 4 million more trees. That seems like a tremendous amount. Is that the kind of mass planting that you'd like to see happen?
10: Yeah, that's a lot of trees. That would be a really big effort. I mean, I, I think Trees and and thinking about kind of the public spaces that we inhabit more generally and how to design those in a way that takes people's comfort and safety into account is a really important project for us now, especially as climate change kind of exacerbates in the future and its impacts become clearer. We often think of these spaces, or or over the decades, we've kind of seeded a lot of our public space, especially in California to cars. And that was a thing that definitely happened in LA, even in areas where there were trees in the past. Often as streets got widened and parking spaces got added, public street trees got taken out. And so anything we can do to kind of keep the trees we have in good shape and to add to that and to to really prioritize people's experiences in public spaces, I think is is a hugely important project.
1: You know, as temperatures continue to rise, and of course, trees take time to grow, and they need infrastructure to keep them watered and healthy. Do we have time to make this plan work?
10: Yeah, that's a great question. And one that I asked a lot of the people working on this question in Los Angeles, and Miguel Vargas, who is one of the people I spent quite a bit of time with, had a great answer to this. He was just thinking really far ahead. He's like, climate change isn't going to stop. This is only going to become a bigger problem. And if we don't do it now, do we want to be looking at the world we're going to inhabit in 30 years? Like I'm doing this for the future, even though we know it's a slow project. And I just thought that was such a wonderful way to look at the question. Like, of course, this isn't going to be enough. Of course, this isn't going to have impacts tomorrow. But the way that we address climate change and its risks has to be forward-thinking, it has to take this really long view.
1: That was climate journalist Alejandra Burunda.
6: Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda.